I want to talk about with Noah is kind of a continuation of what we have been discussing in terms of the power of primitive faith. Uh, it is not uh, to be taken for granted that some of these profiles in the Bible going all the way back to the earliest pages of Scripture possess for us a very potent example of faith. That what we're looking at in the life of Noah, Abel, Enoch, and we can extend that to everybody else that lived in the ancient world, uh, as so far as their lives were in conformity to the will of God, to the Word of God, is that we have examples that are worthy of our imitation. Remember, that really is uh, what is being set out in front of us in these examples. We are being told to imitate godly examples for our own good. And so I hope that we will do that. We've been highlighting kind of a different virtue with each passing person. Uh, I, I would say ultimately it has to do with faith, but in each person I think the author has a has a specific task in mind. In other words, he has a specific virtue in mind that he wants to highlight for us, like with Abel, like with Enoch, who walked with God and had a life of devotion. So now too with Noah. What I want to highlight with Noah is what are the characteristics or what are some of the distinguishing marks of genuine or true obedience? Because that is exactly what we have in the life of this man. Let's read verse 7 one more time for our own purpose here. It says here, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence he prepared an ark for salvation for his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. What a potent passage of Scripture. What an absolutely striking verse in the Bible. It's so jam-packed here with truth. And one of the things that we need to recognize is that, in fact, Noah was a righteous man. I think that's something that we need to, to really take in consideration. Let me, let me have you consider two verses in Genesis. You might want to have to have your hand there in Genesis chapter 6, because we're going to be going back and forth, Genesis 6, Hebrews, and other places. But Genesis chapter 6, just to make it abundantly clear, that Noah was a righteous man. That is to say, he did have a righteous character. He was somebody who did walk and follow and pursue, and he did devote his life to God. He was pleasing in God's sight. Genesis 6, 9. Listen to the testimony of Scripture. It says, Noah was a righteous man. It says, he was blameless in his time. And like what we heard with Enoch, Noah walked with God. Uh, everything about that screams that Noah was exemplary, that he was unique, that he stood out among his time. The, the fact that he references his time, as we will see, makes him a shining, a beacon of, of righteousness in the context of a world of darkness and immorality and violence and corruption. Look at uh, chapter 7, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone, you want to talk about exceptional model of faith, you alone I have found or I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Noah rose above the fray. He rose above the culture. He rose above his contemporaries, his neighbors that were caught up in the spirit of this age. And so, as you can see, there is going to be 
quite a bit that connects us to the life of Noah. So much of this, I mean, it preaches itself, the application. But one of the things I want to point out as we consider and we focus in on Noah's faith, focus in on his obedience. Let us say that first Noah's faith in the unseen led to this obedience. Now, I want you to look at the text because verses 1 through 7 really are quite a structure. Um, the author has structured this pericope, this paragraph, this passage around the concept of the things which are not seen. The things which are not seen. It begins that way. Notice in verse 1. Faith is, as he goes on to say, the conviction of things not seen. And then here in verse 7, it says Noah was warned about things not yet seen. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the link that binds this all together. Think about it. The most profound things in the life of Noah were those things which he could not presently see. Same thing applies to us when we think about the things that are unseen for us. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7 says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Uh, God is eliciting us to walk in full confidence and in full reliance upon Him and upon His Word, knowing that we are being called upon to trust things that we cannot see yet. Um, and so many people try to pry into the things that they can't see. And so there's no shortage of films and documentaries and Oprah Winfrey interviews of people who have gone into a tunnel of light and have claimed to have crossed over to the other side to see the things that are unseen. Which things the Apostle Paul, who actually did uh, trans translate himself or was translated into the other world said it's unlawful to even talk about those things but we are called to walk by faith a total trust a total confidence this is why it all begins if you go back to verse three it all begins in a total absolute commitment to the word of god look at what it says by faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of god so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So the Word of God constitutes that which is invisible. Uh, the things that the Word of God is proclaiming constitutes that which is abstract. As of right now, the doctrine of heaven is an abstraction. You cannot see it. You cannot taste it. You cannot feel it. You cannot look at it. You can't smell it. You can't put it in a test tube. You can't bring a pound of heaven and show it to somebody. It is completely unseen to you and I, but it is completely real, and we are called to have absolute, uncompromising confidence in the fact that we too, like Noah, will inherit the promises. We will inherit the promises. Now, Noah was warned about this. By the Word of God, the world was prepared. And by the Word of God, Noah was warned to build an ark because the world that God had prepared was going to perish. It says, in reverence, he prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. See, he understood the significance of the judgment of God. Are you and I any different? I don't think so. Turn with me in your Bibles to Second Peter Second Peter chapter 3, just for one example of this, that you and I both live in the same type of tension that Noah lived in. 
We live with the full assurance of the coming judgment of God. You know, as I was sitting there pondering over the life of Noah, pouring over the text of Scripture, reflecting on Noah as a human being. I mean, remember, folks, this is not a superhuman Christian. This is not a this is not a hyper spiritual man. He's a human being. He is a sinner just like you and I. And he was exemplary because of his faith. But remember, this is a man. This is a human being. And what was laid on him was so massive, the gravity of the reality that was revealed to him. Imagine, put yourself in his shoes. God chose to reveal to you that in a very short while, everyone around you is going to drown. And that God is going to save you and your household. Incredible! Think of the, think of the psychological war, think of the state of mind he must have been under. Is it any different for us? Look at 2 Peter 3, beginning of verse 3. It says, now this, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. I think we have hit, uh, light speed when it comes to mocking today. Um, uh, so much I can say about that, but let's face it, I mean, we basically live in a culture that completely, utterly ridicules anything Christian, anything judgment, anything heaven or hell, anything having to do with the Bible. Just come out to the university with me on a Wednesday and you'll see that very clearly. We're raising a generation of mockers. That's what's going on today in this country. They're following after their own lust. Verse 4, saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues just as it was from the beginning of the creation. Verse 5, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. Oh, they fail to see the reality of it. That, by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and by the water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water, but by His Word, the present heavens and earth, that is our time. Present heavens and earth. They are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Folks, we may not be standing outside of a boat with the understanding that everyone around us is about to drown to death but even more so, you and I are, out, are standing outside of the ark of God, if you would, understanding that everyone around us is going to burn to death. Think of that. And, and though we don't want to be laden with guilt, as if we have a guilt-driven evangelistic zeal, we do want to have a zeal. After all, how much do you have to hate your neighbor not to tell them that in fact, in a very short while, unless they repent... They're going to drown in a deluge of fire and wrath. I think we can identify with Noah so easily on this point. Let's talk about this a little bit more. Noah's faith in the judgment of God led to obedience as well, as we've seen here. It says, look at the word, go back to Hebrews chapter 11. Look at, um, look at what exactly it says here. By faith he was warned about things not yet seen. In reverence he prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Now watch this. 
by which he condemned the world. Isn't that tremendous? What that is saying, because the antecedent here is referring to Noah. It's not referring to God, it's referring to Noah. By virtue of Noah building the ark, he became the instrument of God's judgment. Think about the weight of that calling, right? And um, once again, uh, is it any wonder that you and I can identify with this man? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 so that I can show you this. That anybody in here, if you are a Christian, you do identify with this. You must identify with this because of the position, just like Noah, the position that God has put you in as a believer, as a Christian, as somebody that has the gospel, that has the message of righteousness, even as Noah did, as we will see. Second Corinthians chapter, chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, you know this passage. It says, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those that are being saved and among those who are perishing. So you have no choice, right? You're put in this position de facto if you're a Christian. You're put by default into this place where you stand as a symbol of salvation and judgment just by the fact that you are in Christ. It says, To the one, you, the Christian, we, the Christians, are an aroma of death to death. And to the other, we are an aroma of life to life. And now listen to the same burden that... Noah had. Who is adequate for these things? Don't you see what it's saying here? Who is adequate to be called to this ministry of life and death? Every one of us has it. That to one person, to the one that is perishing, to the soul that is perishing, your very presence, as it were, if you are doing your job as a Christian and being a witness... Your very presence when you walk into the room at the break, in the break room at work, when you walk in and the, 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 the jokes are, are going on and people are coarse jesting and you walk in and people know, oh, somebody who doesn't share our moral standards and our delight of filthy things has just walked in. It's like a shining light. They can't, it's like cockroaches. They want to scatter. That's who you are. You represent the light just like Noah did. What about Noah's faith in this time? What was it like? I can detect three things from Noah's obedient faith in light of the judgment of God. Number one, he was reverential. What does the text say? In reverence, he built an ark. He prepared an ark. See, he felt the gravity of what it is that God had called him to be and to do. Do we feel that? Do we feel the weight, the gravity of the message that we bear, that we carry along? Do we really? I was uh, listening to a message recently here by MacArthur. He was talking about how to be a mature, responsible adult Christian. Uh, MacArthur has a lot to say about the juvenilization of evangelicalism, which I think is a good way of describing a lot of it. And he says one of the things you got to do is you need to be, you need to have a a certain indifference to entertainment. I thought, wow. Uh, he said when entertainment is presented to you, you need to have a very take it or leave it attitude. Eh, just 
not really, you know, moved by it. And trust me, as a basketball fan, as a, as a raving, you know, Lake grew up as a raving lunatic, you know, Laker fan, I tuned in when he started talking about that. I love sports. But MacArthur's right. To have sort of a deadness, uh, indifference, to have sort of a, it doesn't have an allure that it once did. Why? I think, at least in part, it's because of what you know to be true. That all the athletes that are out there competing, if they're not in Christ, will perish. They will perish. If Christians don't have an eternal mindset, who will? The Olympians? Never. Not in a million years. Matter of fact, one thing they highlighted about the Olympic Village is that it's a cesspool of immorality. They could care less about the things that you and I hold dear, the things that you and I understand and know by faith because we believe in the unseen. No. We have to have a reverence for the knowledge of what we have, a weightiness as far as that goes. We live in a world of complete, utter flippancy. We live in a world of total disregard for their own souls. I remember witnessing to a young lady once, and I recently talked about this on a podcast. We had been doing evangelism. This was, oh, probably 10 years ago. And evangelism had been over for the night, and his brother and I were fellowshipping, sitting down, talking, and we heard some commotion off to the left. We were out in a promenade somewhere in Southern California. We went over there, and there was a group of punk rock kids. Well, I grew up in punk rock, so I, I identify with that whole anarchy movement and all of that. And so we went up and talking about him, and one of the one of the young kids there, a young man, was so intoxicated, he was vomiting into a trash can, cursing us while he's vomiting. I mean, this young lady turns to us and say, I don't care. We started preaching the gospel to her. She says, I don't care what you say. I'm going to get pregnant. I'm going to have abortions. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to kill my babies. She used that language, just vile. And we just thought, this is, this is what, this is what we're producing in this country. A generation of people that absolutely don't care about anything. And I thought, but why is that not just like Noah's time? It is. You think about it, in Noah's time, the description that is given to us is that this world was vile. Look at Genesis chapter 6. <clears throat> if you have any inkling whatsoever, if you have any notion whatsoever that what God did in the flood was somehow cruel or mean or unrighteous, if you've been on skeptics' websites and they talk about God being a, a maniacal, egotistic, you know, a, a genocidal maniac, as they blasphemously do, you understand what God saw. Look at Genesis 6.11. The earth was corrupt in the sight of God. That's enough to send the whole world to hell right there. And God would be perfectly righteous and just and perfectly holy. It says, <clears throat> the earth was filled with violence. Boy, if the earth was filled with violence, then what does God see now? God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. In other words, what that means is, Every person on the earth at this time had sought out to live a life of vile corruption, of immorality. God says, the end of all flesh has come up before me, and the earth is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. You know what this leads me to believe? 
On top of Noah having a reverence for God, we know that that was the attitude he had and the worldview that he had is that Noah had such a worldview that he believed and he had a God-centered view of all things. Never did Noah once infringe upon the attributes of God. Never did he cast aspersions upon the justice of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. Never did Noah question God. At least we have no record of it. And when we think about the intolerable boiling point of sin that this create, that the creation reached at that time, and we think of the madness, and we think of the chaos and the crisis of a world that was then created and that was consigned to death by drowning. And if in your mind you hear the, the probably millions if not billions of untold people drowning in a deluge of God's wrath and in your mind it's a bit too much and it's overwhelming, what I say our response should be is that instead of being upset over what God did, we need to be upset over the gravity of sin. We need to tap into this is how loathsome and odious and, 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 and just intolerable sin is in the eyes of God. That He would drown an entire globe. And I believe in a worldwide flood. I don't believe it was a local flood. I think it was above every mountain of the earth, just like it says. Consequently, God had already chosen Noah. That's why I say that he had a gospel or he had a God-centered worldview. Part of what lends me to believe that is that he had an absolute understanding and an apparently an absolute commitment to the sovereignty of God. Understand, the ark is not a rescue boat. The ark was not equipped with life rafts and ropes and lifesavers for people to climb on top of and try to save themselves and come into the ark. It was an ark of judgment. It wasn't a rescue mission. It wasn't Noah outside selling tickets to get on the ark and escape the wrath of God. It was a sovereign ark. It was a sovereign condemnation. Genesis chapter 6. God had already decreed to save an elect people. And put them on the ark. Put them on the ark. You see the sovereignty of God in Genesis 6 verse 17. God had already determined. God had already purposed. God had already sovereignly orchestrated the idea that His covenant purposes would continue with this man and with this man's family and not with anyone else. Genesis 6.17 Behold I, listen to the sovereign imposition of God. Behold I, even I, will bring the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. Verse 18 But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. I have to be honest with you. Going to the ark encounter, visiting the ark in Kentucky was really a thrill. It was an amazing thing. But I must be honest with you that I laughed when I saw a commercial for the ark encounter in which the commercial ends like a theme park and they're saying, the adventure begins again. The adventure for who? (laughs) 
even for Noah and his family, it's not an adventure. It is a time of judgment and wrath. Think of it. The adventure? Okay, I'll leave it there because Ken Ham's a friend, so. Wow. Wow. One more part of his faith. It wasn't just reverent, God-centered. I'm going to say this. It was also resilient. Resilient. Why do I say that? Because we know that the faith of Noah was not stagnant. He wasn't just a bystander. He wasn't lazy. He wasn't just trifling in a fallen world, as so many Christians are, just sort of trifling around in a fallen world. He had purpose. He had focus. He understood what, what, what he had to do. He was missions-minded. Um, he was evangelistic. He was zealous. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5, gives us just a little glimpse into the character or the, the nature of Noah's life in the flood at this time where it says that God didn't spare the ancient world, but He preserved Noah. And look at the way that He's described. He is described as a preacher of righteousness. Oh, so now we get a little bit more of an understanding that Noah was not just kind of sitting there as a, as a bystander watching all this happen, but that he, he did not allow this coming impending judgment of God to keep him from evangelizing. He was evangelistic. He preached the gospel. And notice, he preached the gospel to who? It says, to the world of the ungodly. This is why we're right where Noah is. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 basically tells us once again that you and I are in the same boat. We know the fear of God. We know that judgment is coming. Matter of fact, the apostle Paul says, we have to all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Second Corinthians 5:10. Every one of us will have to give an account for what you've done in the body, good or bad. And then the Apostle Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Are you persuading men? Then maybe you are still out of touch with the fear of the Lord. Right? Maybe you still, maybe it hasn't hit you like Noah. Maybe the gravity of what we're talking about hasn't hit you so that you still have not reached out to that family member to share Christ, to your neighbor to share Christ. This is not easy for me. Just because I'm a pastor, trust me, folks, if you really knew who I was, I'm very introverted. Trish knows. I told her the other day I should have been a hobbit. Matter of fact, when I was a kid, I would fantasize about being a hobbit. I want nothing more than live in a little hole in the wall on the hill with a round wall, with a round door. I'd be perfectly content. And then when I became a Christian and discovered theology, forget about it. Throw the key away. Leave me locked up away. I'll be just fine if I don't talk to a human being for days on end. But God in His sovereignty saw fit not to let me do that. But you can't do that either. We can't be like that. We have to, if we understand the gravity of judgment, we have to be willing to reach across the street. You know what my wife makes me do almost every year? I'll give you just an example of this. 
She bakes cookies for the neighbors. You know it's already going bad, right? We're going door to door with a plate full of chocolate chip cookies and tracks <laughs> and knocking on the neighbor's doors in our neighborhood, right? And I'm standing there and I feel like a big old, you know, big old bump on a log just sitting there like, oh man, someone's going to answer this door right now. And Trisha's just beaming, you know, she can't wait to give out cookies at neighbor's door. What are you doing? Okay, so don't give cookies, but what are you doing? Knowing that we're surrounded by the world of ungodliness filled with people who are going to perish. You say, oh, well, that's talking about the final judgment. No, it's not. You know what Psalm 73 says? This is a devastating verse. Psalm 73, verse 19. The wicked are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. You never know when will be the last time that you ever get to share Christ. You just never know. Never know. For years ago, many years ago, we used to do convalescent home ministry. And I loved it. And I used to share the gospel with an old Dodger. A guy was in his 80s, maybe early 90s. And I would go there week after week, pleading with him, pleading with him, pleading with him. And one week I went there looking for him and he was gone. And I'll never get to share with him again. But I was so glad that I did. So glad that I shared the gospel with him. We had this banter back and forth. And he, this minute he would see me, he would begin talking to me about how I still won't let him in. I still won't let him in. I said, boy, I hope that he let him in at the last moment of his life. But you never know when is the last time God is going to give you to have an opportunity to share with someone in this ungodly world to be spared from the wrath of God. Finally, look at the basis of all, the basis of all of Noah's obedience. I'm going to make an argument that that is justification. You see what he's saying there back in Hebrews 11? He condemned the world. It says he became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now that concept of heirship connects us with Noah. He was an heir You are an heir. We are heirs. The people in the New Testament were heirs of the righteousness that comes by faith. It's speaking about justification and the the eternal inheritance that that leads us to. Where is this righteousness found? It is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, I would say this is a perfect example of, of a New Testament teaching a sort of a, of, a, um, of a retroactive application of the work of Christ to an Old Testament believer. There's one righteousness, one inheritance of one righteousness, one justification, one gospel, many covenants, many administrations, many dispensations, but there is one gospel, one faith, one Lord, one way of salvation. That is it. In Romans chapter 4, when the New Covenant, New Testament Apostle Paul wants to build his case for New Covenant, New Testament doctrine of justification, who is the model of that? Abraham. Abraham is the paradigm for biblical justification because justification has never ever changed. It has always been by grace through faith. 
and that not of ourselves. The gospel has never changed. Look at Romans 4, verse 16, and talk about how was Noah justified? Well, it wasn't by works, and that's what it means. He became an heir of the righteousness that is by faith. What that means is that puts Noah in the redemptive stream of genuine sovereign grace. Romans 4, 16. For this reason, talking about justification, it is by faith. This is a verse all of you should have etched in your mind. Because we're talking about the fountain of justifying grace, of God's justification of a sinner. And it says, it is by faith, watch this, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. You see that? So if God is going to save by grace, then it must be that the heirs of grace must be saved through faith. Faith is the way that that, that, that works are excluded and the grace of God is magnified. Is magnified. Finally, this grace is found solely in the person of Jesus Christ. I want to leave you with this verse. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, may I be found in Him. You see that? Beautiful, because the doctrine of, of justification is not simply some... Uh, some empty, legal, forensic activity in the Bible. It is deeply mystical, spiritual, and personal through our union with Christ. And it says, May I be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law. And so we could say the same of Noah. He did not have a righteousness of his own, derived from the law. That is derived from good works, law-keeping, merit. He did not merit. He did not earn. He did not deserve justification. It was given to him, bestowed upon him by the sovereign grace of God, and he received it by faith. He says, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That is how Noah was uh, justified. And you know what? I love the word heir. I love the word heir, brothers and sisters, because there is our hope. The word heir means inheritance. The word heir means you are privileged, highly favored. You are brought into God's bosom. You are going to inherit the earth. You're going to inherit uh, Christ's kingdom. We are going to be fellow heirs with Christ of His glory, of His kingdom, of His riches. In the book of Hebrews, we are going to inherit salvation. In the book of Hebrews, we are going to inherit the promises. In the book of Hebrews, we are heirs of the promise. In the book of Hebrews, the best part of this inheritance, according to Hebrews 9.15, is that it is an eternal inheritance. In other words, to use the language of Peter as a good commentary on Hebrews, it is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will never fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you, for Noah, for Enoch, for Abel, for Spurgeon, for Calvin, for Luther, for Edwards, for anyone in here, any man, woman, or child in this church that will put their faith solely and exclusively on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews tells us 
don't add anything to that. Hebrews is telling us, don't ever let go of that. Don't ever mistake the gospel for anything else. Never go back. Never add anything to it. That's why the gospel, that's why the book of Hebrews is, is, is a book of, of warnings, they call it. Because Hebrews is constantly warning us against the peril of unbelief and apostasy. The gospel is the gospel, the gospel of God's pure sovereign grace. We dare not dilute it. We dare not revise it. We dare not edit it or try to improve upon it. Father, we thank you that you save us on the basis of that which brings you ultimate glory. We thank you, Father, that you save us on the basis of the grace of God and thereby magnifying yourself the most. We thank you, Father, that you save us in such a way that you exclude our boasting that we cannot boast in anything that we have done. By grace, you have been saved through faith, not of yourself. It is the gift of God. And Lord, we confess how undeserving we are of this gift. We confess we don't deserve the gift. We've done nothing to deserve it. Matter of fact, not only do we not have merit, O oh Lord, we have nothing but demerit. We haven't earned your righteousness. We've earned your wrath. But it is the gospel of grace that not only does it mercifully keep us from what we deserve, but then it graciously grants to us what we do not deserve, which is the infinite glory, the infinite riches and wealth of Jesus Christ in His kingdom. Be glorified, we pray. Help us to imitate Noah, his life, his resilience. Help us to be like Noah, evangelists, standing out in a wicked, perverse generation, being witnesses to our neighbors that are lost without you. Give us strength, Lord. We say with the Apostle Paul, who is sufficient for these things? In Jesus' name, amen.